Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Amber Love from Vodka Clock Podcast and AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget we are labeled as an explicit website and podcast. And welcome back to the show, Jeremy Holt, who is amazing, and I'm so glad that he enjoys returning to Vodka Clock. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, um, we have so much to catch up on. Um, you. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. It's good that it's been such a great, productive year for you, for you, and um, it's you're connected to like so many of the same people. So, it, you know, it's just funny that when we're on Twitter and stuff, we're often in the same conversations. Um, but yeah, it's a small, small community like that. It is. It is. Um, so, I, I, you know, I went back to check the show notes to figure out what it was that we were talking about last time. And it was about after Houdini and Challenger Comics. And, you know, now you've got new stuff coming out. So give us a, a rundown of where we left off with After Houdini. Uh, After Houdini, um, the first issue uh, debuted at at, um, Heroes Con in in June. Um, Kevin and I have been hard at work uh, working on the second issue. Um, We did release a full-color version, I'd say maybe maybe two months ago, um, which has been good. and yeah, we're just we're just trying to work through uh, the second issue. Um, it's it is challenging because Kevin does have a day job, and I think he he was under the weather for a while, which you know it happens. And um, yeah, you know, we, nobody's we don't yeah get sick days in comics. Yeah, totally, totally, and like he does, and he he actually manages a liquor store. So when I, I think something happened along the lines of um, several employees quits or something, so he kind of had to do a bunch of double shifts and, you know, just general life getting in the way of comics kind of thing, and um, uh, we just spoke actually yesterday, and, and uh, I think he's back on track, so um, not really sure when the second issue is going to come out. I'm hoping uh, before the end of the year, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do actually, we receive some interest from, from a major publisher um, haven't received any commitments from them, but uh, it definitely was um, uh, positive. So we'll see. That's really great news. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, it's just, I mean, it was a really fun story. I mean, you took, you know, you took something that's iconic and created like this, you know, new generation, and at the same time made all of these these ties about you know, Harry Houdini that were worth exploring. So that was really cool. It's a good story. Thank you. And um, uh, you've got Pulp, which is the next title out, which was, like, so different than your other work that I that I saw when I read that, like, a few nights ago. I was like, wow, it's not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. Um, that story... Uh, it's kind of funny because um, the the artist Chris Peterson, uh, who more or less uh, co-created the book with me, uh, we've been talking about working on this book for at least a year, um, and I was actually inspired to do a one-shot after I had read Kurt Pyer's, um LP, which was a, a really well-received one-shot he did last year. Um, I believe Multiversity Comics did a whole piece on, on on it and how much they loved it. And then I read it, and it was 
it was really the first one shot I had read from an independent creator that not only did I know this person, but I actually was, I became a huge fan of his work and I was like kind of geeking out over somebody I, I actually know and, and, uh, have a friendship with. So, um, I also saw the legitimacy of, uh, doing a one shot, like telling a story beginning, middle end in one issue, because as an independent creator, it's so much easier to sell a book at a convention or just to the general public if they get all of it in one, one go. Um, and yeah, I, was, I agree. Yeah. And, and I was struggling with that, uh, cause I did several shows this year and, you know, I had first issues of, of several series that I'm writing and it, it was always kind of awkward when, you know, someone come to the table and they want to buy a book and then they'd ask inevitably, when, when's the second issue coming out? And to not have an answer to that is just, it's so demoralizing. So I was like, I need to try to just, as a writing exercise, try to tell a story, something that's engaging, something that someone would want to reread um, and, and kind of want to hold on to it. So I had this idea for Pulp, which is kind of a, I mean, it's a, a noir type story. Um, and uh, I had this idea for it one night, and I couldn't go to sleep. So I, the next day, I, I, I literally outlined, scripted, and revised all of it in about, I'd say, 10 hours. Um, and it was done. I was like, there I go. I, there's my one shot. I accomplished it. Um, now I just need to find an artist. And Chris and I were talking about working on something, and I sent it to him, and he really liked it. Um, but then, you know, Chris got very busy with um, a Dark Horse book he's working on. Uh, so the schedule of having it come out, I think we wanted it ready for Emerald City. That came and went. And then uh, wanted to have it ready for Heroes Con. That came and went. So I was like, oh, maybe I'm not going to get to work on this. And uh, Chris finally was like, you know, I'm going to do it. We're going to have it for New York Comic Con. I was like, are you sure? Because New York Comic Con's a week away. Like, <laughs> I haven't seen anything from you. Not that that's, that's the deadline, but that's that's a week. I mean, that's a lot of work, man. Like, you don't have to kill yourself over this. We can just release it later. It's not a big deal. And he was like, No, no, no. I want to get this done. So, I'd say in the span of three solid days, like all nighters, he did a twenty-four page comic, which he penciled, inked, colored, and lettered in like less in less than four days, and uh. We had it for New York Comic Con, and then I was just sending it out to reviewers, and we were both really surprised with how well it's been received. Um, and his, his art is magnificent. I mean, yeah. just to give people sort of a visual, if they've uh, you know never never seen any of the the previews or reviews about Pulp yet, um, it's very Darwin Cook Parker series. Um, where his, the illustrations have a bit of a sketch sketchiness to them, and then very distinct, uh, like duotone colors, where it's not, you know, you're not talking about like a full color. It's um, it's just so interesting because it's like old Playboy illustration styles. Yeah, and um, you know, and it was because did you work together before because or or something because somehow I was following him on Twitter because of you mentioning him or something and I didn't know. Yeah, um, we had worked together on um, a five-page short story that ran in the back of Curtis Weeb's series Grim Leaper for Image. Okay. Um, we he did five. He allowed five people to contribute five-page short stories that were kind of in line with the theme of the series, which is um, a love story to die for. So. Um, 
I had written a five-pager that kind of, there was a big debacle with the original artist, and Chris stepped in, and again, he, he delivered within a week, um, and we got the pages to the, to image on time, and they approved it and, and went to print. Um, so that's when we first worked together was was last summer, I believe. Um, and yeah, the style was something that we debated for a while, and you know his work on uh, B Vixens, which is the Dark Horse series he's doing with Alex DeCampi, um, is a more realistic style and it's cleaner lines. Um, but he really wanted to do something as he refers to as cartoony. I don't think it's necessarily cartoony. I think it's, it's maybe more complex than that. Um, but he wanted to do that because of the mature content of the story, because it would just be that much more jarring when you, you know, see the what makes this story, uh, you know, a mature content story. And uh, and I think it totally worked. And and it's it is impressive that he did all of this in three days. Because when we read some of the reviews, a lot of people say, you know, his Chris's work is so refined and like. And and he kind of laughs because he's like, I did that in like three days, and I was like, I know that's crazy. It's that's crazy. just amazing. Was it you who just said on 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 Twitter something about what you know? Hey, writers, what you need to do is just find an artist that makes you look mind blowing or something like that. Yeah, uh, actually, someone else, <laughs> uh, someone else posted that. Um, God, I'm forgetting who. who posted I forget that. who yeah. said that, but I was oh, just like, retweet. Uh, it was uh, Joey Esposito. Who oh, said there we go. Yeah. And uh, I was like, yeah, absolutely right. That's that's what that's what we're here for. We need to stand in the shadow of our artists because uh, they, they do amazing work. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I was really nervous about the story because there is there is a twist at the end, and I and I, I didn't... I, I knew that the twist worked in my head when I wrote it, and I've reread the script since then, but seeing it on the page, I was really kind of nervous to kind of see it play out, and I thought it, I thought it worked, and I was really nervous that people were not going to get it. And when I was reading reviews, they were saying, oh, I had to reread this, this three times, and I was like, oh, my God. But they were like, I read it three times because I knew the first time I read it, it was something good, and I just wanted to figure it out. And by a third read, you're like, whoa. And one of the best compliments I've seen a couple people say is that when it's not – when reading it, it's, it's not something that you read. It's something you experience. That's which pretty thought, amazing. Yeah. Which, uh, but I, I, I felt the same thing. I did go back, like, you know, when I got to the end, I went back to, you know, a certain number of pages and, like, and flipped through them again. I was like, okay, now I'm piecing this together. Because it, it is a bit of, like, a, you know, solving the mystery. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and that's what I wanted, because I, I wanted something that someone could kind of, you know, re- revisit, uh, not because they – they were, you know, want to get their money's worth, but because they really want to figure it out. And I, and, you know, it's, it's a tricky balance and, and I really didn't think I could pull it off. Um, but I guess reviewers have uh, proven me wrong. So it's been nice, a nice surprise. So when you're working on a script, do you, well, let me, you know, maybe a better question is to put it this way. Do you automatically find artists, know you want to work with them and then come up with a script suitable to them or do you just write out the stories because you feel like you really have something to say and then find your artist? I, I work uh, in both those ways. Um, there are stories that I feel I have to absolutely write and I do and um, it's a matter of pitching that concept to an artist. Um, but a lot of the times, you know, there are artists that I want to work with and, and I, you know, ask them, you know, what do you want to draw? And that's that's how uh, after Houdini came about because Kevin and I had been working for a while and on on projects I had written and he just wasn't feeling it and he was just 
kind of not really producing any work, and he, and I just could tell he wasn't excited. So I asked, I said, "What do you want to draw?" And he's like, "I love Harry Houdini, and I have an idea, but I don't have a story." Um, and that's how I I started doing all this research into Houdini and came up with the concept. And um, but Pulp was one of those things that I I wanted to write for myself, and I really wasn't expecting anyone to draw it. I just it was really just a writing exercise, and I think it was a good exercise for Chris too to see. Um, his output, like to see what he's capable of. And, you know, I think it really, it's, it's a confidence booster for him because, you know, he spent, you know, again, three days on a 24 page comic and it's, it's top quality. So, you know, he knows that, oh, if I, if I'm given a month, I can produce something that, that is absolutely top quality, not something that he's questioning. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it goes both ways for, for, as far as me scripting things. So when um, when you're working, I mean, obviously Chris did this amazing turnaround of, of three days, and you hadn't seen it, but is that normal for you, or do you normally go through a longer process of getting concept art and character sketches, and you know, or is it just you just know and have so much faith that you're you just turn it over? Um. Typically, if I, yeah, if I've never worked with someone, I, I would want to see layouts. Um, I'm not really married to my script, so if an artist you know changes the layouts or adds a panel or removes a panel, I'm I'm typically very flexible on that. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll usually see you know concept sketches for the characters and then layout rough layouts and then uh, tighter pencils and then I just let them if they want to ink it, I, I just say just go for that. But with Chris, having worked with him before and knowing his style and He'd sent me a couple sketches um, earlier in the year, and because I really just wanted wanted the story to get made, I, I just totally just trusted. I was like, "Look, just do whatever you want with the script. Like, if you want to change things, if you want to add things, just just do it. I don't I don't mind. Um, I trust you. I, I know that your work's good. I know that you know you've been thinking about the story because he was telling me that his process." Um, which I thought was kind of interesting is that he was doing a lot of um, layouts as far as the spaces because pulp takes place basically in two different locations and that's it. So it's, it's pretty minimal uh, from that. So he was really spending more time on the, the physicality of the layouts. So because there are only two locations, it can get kind of monotonous uh, for the reader. So he was basically figuring out exactly the dimensions of the rooms, um, the layouts of the house, the office, because it takes place in, in a, cabin and in a uh, high-rise office building, um, and he wanted to figure all of that out so he could use as many different angles as he could to keep it visually interesting. Um, but yeah, then I, as I said, yeah, I, I totally trusted him, and, and everything he was sending me, I was just like, perfect, yep, that's great. I have literally no notes. So, Is it a similar process when it comes to the color art as well? Do you, do you just have a hands-off style? Um, yeah, I, I, I've only worked with a handful of colorists. Uh, with Chris, he, he was going for that, that, um, dual tone to kind of just separate the, the different, um, because it, this is, this pulp is taking place in two different periods of time. Um, and I, yeah, I just let him, I just let him do his thing. Um, and really, I mean, I, I have, I do have a formal art background, so, um, I, I, I tend to be a little bit pickier with with colors but then again I'm not I'm no expert so you know I I've 
the colors on on After Houdini, I absolutely love. And you know, I've had some uh, friends of mine that have looked read it, and they're like, "Oh, colors don't really speak to me." And it's like, oh, you know, I mean, it's, it is subjective. Uh, but uh, I mean, with with colorists, I I let them kind of just work because um, as long as it's not uh, just if, if it just doesn't fit the the artwork, because you know, I, I've sent pages to colorists that do a uh, test sample, just one page, and it it's very clear to me and and the artists when when we're sh- looking these these samples over, like which one fits the story and the tone that we're going for. So, well, with um with pulp, you have it set. Um, is it supposed to be a very specific 60s time period, or is it, okay? Yeah. I wasn't sure if that was just you know maybe a, an homage to it, or if it actually was supposed to be set there. Um, where do you find uh, just your fandom for you know following that? Because like I, I love this stuff too, and like I said, I mentioned Darwin Cook's Parker series from uh, uh, the Donald Westlake stuff, and. And yet I don't watch Mad Men. I don't watch mm-hmm. I don't watch Magic City or what was the other one? Empire some Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk Empire, yeah. I, I don't watch any of that stuff and yet for some reason when the comics come out I'm enamored. So I mean, do you have particular fandoms? Um yeah, I mean I I get in, inspired um by various T V shows though. I mean I, I I'm I am a fan of Mad Men. Um and when I was coming up with the concept um, it was to me just more visually interesting to set it in that time period, um, and I, I I must have been binging on Mad Men at the time, but I also wanted to kind of infuse kind of a Twilight Zone type uh, twist, I, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess visually, some sometimes it's very clear to me what I what I want, and other times it's it's more vague. Um, and I'm I'm kind of open to an interpretation from the artist, um, but uh, yeah, I mean when I was writing Pulp, I knew I was going to have to try to eventually pitch it to somebody, so I, I needed to come up with like you know an elevator pitch. And the best one at the time, I, I think I, I said something like uh, it's it's Mad Men meets Misery, um, and I, I think that you know it, it kind of boils it down. It's kind of a mashup of two very specific um, ideas and genres. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, with, with the time period, there were specific things I wanted to add, like the typewriter, because it, the story focuses on a writer, and I, I, I think the typewriter helps uh, situate the reader in, in what time period. I mean, there are some people that still use typewriters, but there are other things I don't know if people really picked up on, like the coffee grinder is very of the time. I noticed the coffee grinder um, mainly because I know people who specifically use it today. Really? Because they... Um, they they sense that the the coffee for them tastes different. Oh, so they use um I I it's it's interesting. It was one of those things that I noticed with with detail was that coffee grinder. Oh, very nice, awesome. <laughs> so I mean, but you know, but like I said, I know people who are, who use that sort of thing today, and um, you know, old school, you know, hand hand grinding your beans like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was also you know I was I, I mean the story is about a writer and it's about uh, when isolation uh, meets with obsession and what that kind of does on the human psyche and um, you know any but any of my friends and, and including you that that write creatively like you do 
isolate yourself and and it uh it can really play on on certain emotions and and I read this really great article recently that uh Jim Zubkovich wrote about in the creative field uh especially in comics when jealousy can really be detrimental to your process. That was a phenomenal post. Yeah, and 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 he's right. Like when when you're isolated, you know, you can it's very intimate what you're doing, producing work that, you know, speaks to you and 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 creating things that you hope, you know, resonate with people and then when you see everybody else around you doing things and getting things published and you know having all these you know interviews and and reviews coming out and and it can be very uh frustrating um and i think that uh yeah i mean that's kind of what i wanted to write about it with pulp was just that that feeling of isolation and um and how reality can kind of shift when you're by yourself um you can kind of convince yourself of things when you don't have other people to kind of bounce ideas off of or just talk with, um, which I think that's what I miss about the podcast I, I used to do with Ryan K. Lindsay and Curtis Weave was, you know, we talk about comics and the process of comics, but really we just enjoyed talking out frustrations or, or um, you know, certain fears we're having about certain projects and, you know, just venting with another person is just so helpful. Definitely, you you get uh, whether it's you know the feeling of having a couple beers with your friends or coffee or or whatever. It's you know at least we can connect at Comic Cons and with Skype and and all of these things to sort of have that time that social interaction that we really need. Because I I remember in Stephen King's on writing he talks about his office and he talks specifically about because it's his book. It's called on writing, and yet there's very, very little of it that's technical about <laughs> about the writing process. But he he does describe things like his office and when he wants to play the loudest thrashing music because it it dulls out the rest of the world and he can focus, or when he closes his door at times and there are other times when he has it open, and it um. And I hear that a lot, and it's one of those things where so many, so many writers talk about how they just want to be in a cabin in the woods away from everybody. Uh, and I just, that sounds good to me for a little while, and I mean a very brief while, like a few hours, and then I think I would go insane. You know, it's funny that you mention that, because um, since, I, since I've since i relocated from a, a very bustling city that is, that is New York to a quiet town in Vermont, um... I ha- I will admit I have become much more productive because there are fewer distractions. Uh, but as soon as I I lose steam and I'm not producing anything, I just get very uh, yeah I, I go a little crazy. I go a little I get a little squirrely. I I can I could be in the house all weekend and not notice. Um, and it's uh, yeah it, it's there there's a trade off like to have this time to have the quiet. Um, I mean, I have my own office now, which I've never had in my entire life. So that has been helpful to just kind of, uh, when I walk through that doorway, I know that it's work time and I'm going to produce some stuff. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it, is, it can be very lonely and isolating. Danielle Steele was another writer. Actually, she's probably the first one that I remember reading some sort of interview where she she had this, you know, I mean, she has like, I don't know, a dozen kids or something. It's just, Whoa. it's crazy. I don't know. She's got like a ton of kids. And 
she just talked about how she, you know, would, when it was when it was work time, she'd go into her office and, and close the door. Um, but talk about somebody who can't possibly be lonely, you know, it's like, <laughs> it, it, it seems impossible. And yet, um, when I had a really nice apartment out in, in Pittsburgh, and it, it was, you know, so there was a, a completely different kind of neighborhood than my home now. I mean, like my home, I'm away from everything. Like you have to get in your car yeah. to be anywhere. Um, and in Pittsburgh, it was, I could walk to places and I had close neighbors and it was an apartment, so there were neighbors all over and a really charming little area. And yet I felt so much more alone there than, than I do out here in the country. Interesting. Um, I, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't know, uh, you know, I've got, I don't know. It's, well, plus I'm not living alone, so that's a big, huge part of it. But I can remember just, like, being in that apartment with my cat and feeling like like I was going mad, completely mad. And that's uh, when people talk about how they need to isolate themselves to be productive. I'm like, how? I was, like, in a – I felt like I was in a 24-hour-a-day panic attack because I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, me and the cat and, uh, and you know. Oh well, my God, when, you know. when you're writing, do you, do you prefer to be, like – in a public space, like a like a cafe or, or something. Um, I can probably do either, but um, I've only tried that a few times because um, I'm trying to remember where I might have even done that. I mean, I've I've tried it in a bar and I've tried it in maybe okay. like a like a Panera, yeah, or something. Um, and the hardest part is that is the the interruptions of people. Like, I'm okay with the noise aspect, even if I'll, you know, put earbuds in so it's a, more dull. Sure. But um, it's it's a strange thing that when, even if you have earbuds in, that people will still try to talk to you. Like, oh. <laughs> do you, like do, are you not aware that I'm not interested in the conversation right now? Like, I, I've been in conventions where I've, you know, literally my face is either in a notebook or uh, on my phone, because I'm, you know, maybe taking notes about something, or I'm live tweeting an award ceremony or something like that, and somebody's trying to talk to me. I'm like, do you <laughs> not see how, like, I I feel like I need a light above my head that just says busy, and it blinks, <laughs> and red neon letters. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, like, what, what I try to do, and, and I don't know, this might sound silly, but... Um, Silly is perfectly fine. Well, I make sure that the characters are interesting because I'm spending time with them. And if I'm not interested in, in the characters, then who's going to want to read the story? And and that's what can help me um, when I'm sitting down to write to to tune out the fact that oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend the next eight hours alone. Um, and when I get into the groove of of, of a script, I don't I don't think about that. I, I don't I don't even notice the time. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it can be hard to kind of get into that headspace. And that's what I've spent most of this year trying to figure out is just a routine that I can depend on because eventually I'd like to assume I will be writing full time and I need to know that I could produce work when I need to produce it. Um, and and I've, I've gotten a really good handle on that. Um, 
That's pretty cool. Are you a, a day person or a night person? You know, I used to be a huge night person. Um, it was so that I would stay up till, you know, three or four writing because, you know, that's when the, to me, that's when the internet is quiet and I can be distracted so easily by the internet. Oh, yeah, uh, me too. And, you know, my, the relationship I was in at that time, uh, it took a toll because she was, my ex-girlfriend was really upset about me spending all the time writing late. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm now, in another relationship, I'm, I'm engaged, and, and uh, my my fiance. I think it was like the first week she moved in with me. She was like, "So this late night writing, it has to stop." <laughs> and I kind of freaked out because I was like, "Whoa, is this a deal breaker?" Um, and I realized, no, like I can I can figure out how to make it work, and um, and yeah, I'm not I'm not a slave to a certain schedule. Like, you know, I'm going to need to figure out how to work when I when I can because you know. I have a day job now, so it's like I have limited amount of time to write. Um, so you just have to make what works for you. Yeah, it's actually one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was from my friend Jane Pannon, who's um, the one of the the members here at our the Star Wars costume group, the Five Hundred First Legion. Okay, and he's also an author, and he wrote his book on his lunch hour at his job, and I mean he had a you know challenging, you know, stressful office job, and that's what he did was he, he you know, he, he just knew that when he got home it wasn't going to necessarily be done, and, you know, trying to figure out, well, you know, can I write at night, can I write before I even get to work in the morning, or what can I do, and for him what worked was taking, making sure he guaranteed himself a break at work, and he wrote then, and he said, even if it's crap, you just got to do it. And so that's actually when I write now is I, cause I know I'm not uh, productive at night. I'm just not, I'm tired. Yeah. And, um, I mean, the last couple of nights I've been starting to fall asleep at eight thirty, <laughs> So I know what my productivity is and I'm, I'm a day person. So, you know, in between my work tasks, I'll just have my document open. There are days when my document is open all day and I never look at it. Sure. Some of that's out of laziness. Some of that's just like, well, mood didn't strike me. I was on Twitter. <laughs> um, but other times it's like, oh, okay, my document's open. I'm just going to go back. And it'll be one sentence at a time, literally one sentence here and there. And, um, uh, you know, and, and another bit of in- inspiring information was, was Ian Broom is a podcaster. Okay. And he writes, uh, a, he, he hosts a show called Write for Your Life. And his mother-in-law is a children's book author, and that's what she said she did. She would keep a laptop open on the dining room table or something, and he didn't understand how she ever got a book done. And she said, like, basically, whenever she walked past her computer, she would write one sentence. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I'm like, how do you keep a train of thought that way? But, you know, I guess it worked, and it kept her mind fresh. So I... You know, hearing other people's processes and stories to me is motivational, and other people might not be that way. They might just say, "Oh, well, what works for me works for me," and they don't care. Mm-hmm. But to me, I I like to know that there are these other ways of of trying something. Because hey, I might find something better that works. Yeah, and and it's being receptive to to adapting or revising your process. I mean, I, I remember the first couple of years I was writing, I was adamant about writing 
outlines in a notebook with a pen. Like the, the whole longhand, I was like super proud of. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I, I could sit down and focus and I wasn't distracted by, you know, the internet. And I, I eventually just completely gave up on that when I was realizing my, my outlines were tighter and, and better structured on the computer when I could just delete things much faster and, and reorganize thoughts much faster. Um, and so I, I completely abandoned a process that I thought I was going to stick with uh, forever. And um, because of that, you know, I can, I could script a, a 22 page issue from outline to a, a first draft in, you know, two days. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been super helpful just to be, you know, not thinking there's one way to do it. And I think what's changed, uh, at least for me, as far as working on a computer like that instead of in a notebook, because I do also like um, like to write notes, but I've I've abandoned it as well for the most part, unless I have nothing else. But it's having cloud services and things like you know Google Drive. Yeah. But it doesn't matter whether I'm on my phone or whether I'm at my you know desk job or whether I'm home. I know that my document is someplace I can get to it. Exactly. And that makes a huge difference in, um, you know, my process anyway. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I think about how I used to uh, outline in a notebook and to have to transcribe it all onto a computer, it was just such a waste of time. Like, and, and yeah, for people who have busy lives and they're not always, you know, can, can write conveniently, um, having, having access to your, your document anywhere is, is great. I mean, I do miss, I do miss writing in a notebook, like on the subway when I was commuting from to work, or or writing in a bar. Like I would never bring a computer to a bar; that would just be awkward. But uh, writing in a notebook, I, I like that because it's very versatile. I could do it anywhere. But now it's like I know when I can be most productive. I know if I sit down and just write out the outline. The outline is the heavy lifting for me. Once I get an outline done, I th- the whole process of scripting is much faster. But oh, I agree completely. Yeah, and it's crazy because I I have some friends that don't outline, and I'm just like I don't understand how you script anything. I don't know how you pace anything. I don't know how you do the page turns because I I couldn't I couldn't write a script. I used to, and the scripts were, I thought were not very good. But um, yeah, outline. It's all about outlining for me. It's yeah, it definitely is for me too. And even even when it comes to prose work, I I need to have it worked out. Um, and Robert Kirkman is one of those people who doesn't. He is. That's crazy. I'm like, but but you, how? Look at your body of work. How? how you know? Yeah. Um. So I I don't know. I guess some people have it. Maybe there. I don't know. Maybe there's a way that they can analyze brains and figure out how how it works differently <laughs> for some people. I just I need structure. Yeah, me too. Um. You know, I know some writers insist on having a, a post-it system or something like Scrivener where you have, like, virtual post-its, basically. It's in yeah. software, uh, software index cards, and you, you work stuff out. And I even bought that, and yet, you know, I tinkered around with it for a couple of hours. And, you know, maybe I need a class in it <laughs> because I'm like, I'm like, okay, I don't really get why this would be better. But it's at least it gives you the the um, abilities to export into the format that you need. Sure. Which that alone is worth the the price of the software, whether or not you use any of the outline and chapter stuff that they that they offer. Yeah. And I, and I think I think outlining I mean I'm I'm working on a book that I'm actually co writing 
um, which I've, I've never done before. And honestly, having an outline is a really easy way uh, to co-write something because without that, it's it, it would just seem awkward to script something and then have my co-writer revise it or something. And then it just seems like he's editorial. Um, and something that I started doing with Kevin on After Houdini was uh, he liked seeing outlines because to him that was like the writer's equivalent of doing layouts. And because he wasn't writing the story, you know, I still wanted his input, so I would send him the outlines, and he'd, you know, ask questions or, or comments or whatever, and it was really helpful for him to kind of think of the whole issue rather than just waiting for, you know, script pages to come in. Um, so that's been that's been really great. And, and I, I, I'm trying to do that with all, all the collaborators I'm working with. I send them outlines so they can see an overview of the issue. They can start thinking about it visually. Um, it's just more productive as a uh, co-collaboration. Yeah, I think that's a really um, a nice way, a, a better way to feel like a partnership. Um, like you said, I never even thought of it that way, that it's basically the writer's version of, of layouts and thumbnails. Yeah. Um, so, but I do, before, um, you know, before we lose track of, of time, I want to hear about your project with Dynamite because I just talked to Paul Aller, who um, happens to be involved in the same project. So uh, I know Dynamite's doing some really cool things. They have, uh, we're recording this in, in November, and they're doing pre-orders for some, like, cutesy versions of of books that would never be considered cutesy before. Like they're doing little Lil Red Sonia and like Lil Evil Ernie. And um, so they've, then they basically, they didn't relaunch Red Sonia, but they've taken Red Sonia to, um, you know, a much bigger, broader audience by having female creators involved. And then I, I heard about you and, and Paul are, part of the uh, the Pathfinder series, which I don't I don't actually know anything about Pathfinder. Um, yeah, well, uh, I agree about Dynamite. Like some of the stuff they're putting out now, like they're um, they're doing an Army of Darkness series with Steve Niles, which is exciting. And um, yeah, some of the titles they're bringing back are, are pretty cool. Um, as far as Pathfinder, um, Pathfinder is is a property created by Paizo, which is a, a, a tabletop RPG gaming company, um, very much in line with Dungeons and Dragons. Um, okay. I want to say that they produce some of those books. I'm not even sure. Don't quote me on that. But um, it's all very fantasy based. Um, and the way I got connected with that was um, Jim Zubkovich is writing the Pathfinder series, and he's obviously well versed in the fantasy genre. He's doing Skull Kickers. He's um, he does a lot of D&D. I mean, he, the guy lives for that stuff. Um, and he just, without me knowing, he threw my name in, in a hat uh, for this kind of spinoff series involving goblin stories. Um, and, yeah, editorial there reached out to me and asked me to pitch some stories. And um, I had played D&D as a, as a kid with my, my oldest brother, so I was familiar with it, but I wasn't an expert. So it took some kind of researching into, into Paizo as a company and, and, you know, keeping with continuity as far as characters. And, um, you know, there's so, so many different books written about goblins that, you know, I, I, I had to make sure I was going by what Paizo considers to be fact. Um, so it was really interesting doing work for hire that way, kind of writing a licensed property, which I'd never done before. And it took about 
<clears throat> I'd say three pitches before um, Paizo said yes. Um, the, the stories I sent, the editor at, at Dynamite liked them, but it was final approval by, by the company because we're representing their, their characters. Um, but yeah, I finally had a, a story that um, got the thumbs up and um, the process was extremely smooth. Like I didn't have to find an artist, which was a, a new thing for me. Um, so they found an artist. They put it all together, obviously. I was just responsible for the script. And, um, yeah, I mean, they had no notes on my, my 10-page story, which was I was quite surprised. And it went right into production. And, you know, I saw some the art pages as they were coming in, and then it was solicited for, for November. So um, it's been, it was a fun experience for sure. Is this uh, connected to the, the 2007 movie called Pathfinder, or was that just... I think that's something else, actually. Something else? Okay, because yeah. when I had seen the, you know, that there was a, a comic by this title, and knowing Dynamite does a lot of property-based work, I I thought, well, maybe there was a chance that that's what that was from. But um, so you're saying it's from a tabletop. Yeah, I think it's more in line. I think the Pathfinder film, if I'm not mistaken, was kind of more of a Nordic... It, yeah, it was like a Viking kind yeah. of story. Um, yeah, I... I, I believe this is something different i think um but uh yeah it was it was uh it was cool it was cool to write a, a story that you know trying to, to tell i mean speaking of pulp with the one shot like i had to basically tell a beginning middle and end story in 10 pages so that was uh even more challenging but but fun and and um i would you know be open to doing it again if they have anything that comes up this was this your first anthology um Technically, no. It's, it is the first one that has seen print. Um, I did a, I think it was like maybe a, an eight-page short story for Greyhaven Comics, which I was invited to do. It was, it was a, my story was part of a much larger story, and each writer and artist were telling one perspective of this story. Basically, it's it's a bunch of friends that go out one night drinking and things go horribly awry, but it's retelling the night before through the perspective of each character, and obviously each perspective is very different. Um, but that actually, that hasn't seen print, so I don't, so I mean, technically it's the first anthology thing I, I worked on, and, I, and the artist is uh, Johnny Christmas, who's, who's doing really well at Image. Oh, I love him. I just yeah. oh, love his work. Yeah, so it was pretty cool to work with him, and um, but I don't know what's going on with that, that uh, project, but... Um, so yeah, I've done some anthology work and it, and it's fun. It's a, uh, it's one of the things that I've um heard about when you're you're trying to break in is that you know, consider doing anthologies because it's in, you know, it's a way to to get into larger books with a, a lot of more people involved who are going to also be pushing the book. And I've done, uh, you know, several anthology type pieces and um you know, it's it's a beast. Mm-hmm. When when you do that, but here you're with Pathfinder, you've got a much more, um, I guess, efficient process because the publisher's taking care of things. Yes, yes. And and you're right. I think that doing anthology work or just doing short stories is, A, it's easier of a commitment for an artist if a writer's trying to find someone to collaborate with. Right. Um, and it's, you know, part of something bigger, like Rachel Deering just had a very successful Huge Kickstarter, yeah. Huge Kickstarter that, you know, just proves that, yeah, people, it's it's easier for even established talent to commit to a project like that because it's, you know, it's 10 to 12 pages, nothing crazy. Um, but, you know, it's it's a culmination of 
lots of great stories, which, you know, can be fun. And, um, you know, anybody that's trying to break in, you know, uh, doing anthology work, even if you do your own anthology, um, you know, I have some friends like Ed Briston and Ryan Ferrier that have put together their own anthologies, which um, right. it's also, it's, it serves as kind of a, a portfolio. Like, you can show a publisher and an editor a wide range of art styles, pacing stories, all, you know, under the umbrella of one theme, which is also a great writing exercise. And you are producing work, you're producing a book, so you're proving that you can follow through. Um, yeah, so yeah Paul just, Al, you know, we were talking about Paul Aller being also on Pathfinder, and he did the same thing with his book, yes, Clock, oh, Clockwork. You know, Clockwork is a great collection of stories. Yeah, it's, I'm, it's, I'm in the middle of reading one now called Twisted Dark by uh, Neil Gibson, and it is dark indeed. Like, I, I mean, to the point where I've had to put it down for a couple days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm a depressed person. There's only so many depressing stories I can read. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, he's like, he's the writer, and he has these different artists throughout the stories. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I love short stories, though. I mean, it's it's one of those things that in comics experience, that's how um, we do our exercises in very short format. Okay. Because there's only, you know, if you're trying to read uh, 10 scripts, you can, you know, you can't necessarily get through 10, 22-page scripts or longer. So you sort of, um, you know, you need to wrangle it down to, to five pages or something manageable just for the review process of exercise and, you know, homework, if you will. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's what pitches are mostly. They're just uh, an excerpt of a larger story, um, and you want to hook somebody within five to ten pages, typically. Um, so yeah, I, I I totally recommend you know short stories anthology work for people that are trying to you know get into comics. And what else do you have going on? Um, I have some stuff in the fire. Um, I can't really announce any of it. Um, one of the most recent thing that that'll, I'm hoping will will have an announcement maybe by the end of the month um, is a, a really cool series called Art Monster, which um, I guess the the high concept is Art School Confidential meets Reanimator. Um, so it's kind of a, a Frankenstein story, or my take on a Frankenstein story, and uh, you know hopefully an announcement for that is coming at the end of the month so I can kind of share more about it. Um, and uh, I have something lined up for next summer, which is way too early to talk about, but uh, um pretty excited about that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to have some stuff that I can officially say within the next, you know, four to six weeks. That's good. And I know that, um, you know, you survived New York Comic Con. I barely did. Yeah. <laughs> that was and- rough. Oh gosh, it was, I was only there for a day and it was brutal. Um, and then I got the plague from it that kind of oh, sure. wiped me out for like four weeks. And at the same time, I had other shows to get to. So, um, are you done with your? Now that you're up there in Vermont, I don't know what the convention scene is like up there. Um, <laughs> if there is there one, it's non-existent. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there are actually some creators here. Like uh, probably the most famous one is Allison Bechdel. Uh, oh, sure, yeah. Um, so she she's I mean she lives in Vermont and um, uh, yeah I mean there's not really any shows I, I think the closest one recently was Granite Con which was in New Hampshire um, right yeah which I didn't actually get to which I'll I'll try next year but 
Conventions for me, I think, are, are done until maybe Emerald City. Uh, the thing about conventions is that I don't have completed stories out, like trades out, so I don't really want to table because, again, selling a single issue of a larger series is kind of a waste of time, honestly. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I just kind of want to – I might take a backseat to conventions unless I have a good enough reason to go and and uh, just start building up a body of work and, and having something substantial to – to present people uh, maybe later next year. I think it depends on the show too. Like some shows you um, like, you know, New York is obviously very expensive, um, but there are, there are shows that I just, you know, I don't, I don't really normally table at anything these days. Um, I just go. And if I'm lucky, somebody who's been in, you know, also been in the same anthology or whatever, will have a table and I'll be like, okay, I'll go spend a few hours over there. Uh, but it's there's it's such a big social scene that there I know I guess it depends on what you'd like to go to conventions for. Some people really love panels. I don't. Yeah. You know, I haven't been to a panel in like forever. I used to I used to go to pan, I used to love going to panels, and that now the last this this entire year I've been to maybe four or five shows, and I didn't see a single panel because I just I I don't know I, I go there like you say to um, see friends and like hang out and, and do some networking, but um, I'd like to go to a show and be on a panel. <laughs> I think that, that would I be I think that's fun. Stuff. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. fun. So hopefully I can line some of that stuff up for next year. Um, I so. enjoy it. I, but then again, you know, I enjoy talking, and so do you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm never never too shy to, to talk about comics, so. Um, yeah, we've got a few more things going on down here in the New Jersey area. Actually, I'll be going to... Um, Virginia uh, oh, yeah? for the first time. So I will be at the Richmond, Virginia Comic-Con, and I will be, for the first time, having professional special effects makeup artist Brody Williams work on me. Whoa. And he is going to make me demonic. Wow. We're, yeah, we're doing this for uh, the, the Dead Irons comic, which uh, was actually out through Dynamite a few years ago. So. Oh, wow. So Jim Kohark is uh, letting booth babing to the extent of I'm going to supposedly look scary as hell. <laughs> not so not so babe like. <laughs> oh, that sounds cool. I didn't even know Virginia had. I guess I guess every state really now kind of is having some kind of convention, getting in on on the comic books. Yeah, they're getting there. I mean, I just there's a new one coming up in New Jersey uh, in December that I will be at helping a, a friend's the same thing, helping at a friend's table. So, Where in New Jersey? A town called Hamilton, which hmm. I have no idea where that is. I believe it's somewhere in the South Jersey area. It might be not far from, not far from Philly or not far from like Princeton that area. Gotcha. gotcha. And um, we've got steampunk shows though. We always have we always have something going on there. Hmm. There's always like steampunk shows, and in February is the combined. Two like sister shows going on in in hotels that are next to each other: the Wicked Fair and Voltaire's Necro Comic Con. Oh wow! And so it's like a goth comic fantasy scene all together at once. With you know the those shows are, those uh, are always like filled with musicians and food, like all sorts of like they'll have drink tastings and costumes everywhere. And they're not even costumes. I mean, this is just like. These are the wardrobes that people finally feel like they can wear. 
<laughs> not really. And it's like, oh, we just can't wear these things to our day jobs, but these are our clothes. Um, that's awesome. So that's the kind of stuff that goes on here. And I, so I really look forward to that. And, you know, maybe they'll have a fashion show or something because they, sometimes they pull out a fashion show and those are great. That sounds great. That's awesome. Yeah. So I don't know if there's any, ever any coaxing to get people <laughs> to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> You're so far now, Jeremy. I know. I mean, I have. I actually have um, relatives in New Jersey. Um, my grandparents are there, so I, I don't go as often as as my mom says I should. Um, of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of reasons for me to hit up Jersey. Do you have a local comic shop? I don't, which is um, frustrating, honestly. There's a there's a shop in Burlington, which is about an hour north of me. Um, I set up a pull list. I went in, uh, you know, I was planning to just go once a month, and I go in, and nothing was pulled for me. And I, and I was, and they're like, "Oh, we got nothing for you." I was like, "Okay." So I go over to the to the like new new releases, and all the books are right there on the shelf. And I'm like, "Really?" That's interesting. I was just like, you know what? I'm I'm not gonna. There's no reason for me to come an hour for you to do something that you don't do. Um, right. So yeah, so I I had my old shop in Brooklyn. Uh, the owner, uh, Gary, was awesome at Brooklyn Comics and more, and um, he he would mail me my pull list, um, which was awesome. Yeah, and we then, did that at Comic Fusion, too. We we have a, a mail list. Yeah, and, and I did the I actually did a signing for Pulp at, at the shop uh, during New York Comic Con um, the week leading up to the weekend, and uh, he told me that uh, the shop was closing. No. Yeah, yeah, so it was really kind of a shock because I – we we had the signing on a Wednesday. I ran into him at New York Comic Con on Thursday, and he's like, "Hey, I just I, I thought I should let you know now that uh, you're you're the last signing." I was like, "Oh, are you like diversifying or what's going on?" He's like, "No, we're we're closing." I was like, "What?" Um, so that was, and they I think they closed maybe a week ago. So they actually closed on the day of I think like a five year or seven year anniversary or something. Oh um, wow! Yeah, apparently his business partner was was in doing some shady activity, which kind of ruined the, the business. It's um, such a shame because Brooklyn is such a huge base. I know. And, and the promise people, what was even more heartbreaking was, you know, he didn't, he didn't, you know, he, he found it frustrating. The shop was closing, but really uh, the shop where it is in South slope is it's literally half a block away from a public school. And these kids, come in every Wednesday for their books, and that's what killed them the most, was just not having a place for kids, you know, a fun, safe place to hang out, um, read comics, get into it, and, and that's, you know, going away, which is really, really, really disappointing. Wow. Well, I I think, um, is Bergen Street in, in Brooklyn, or is that in Manhattan? I don't remember. No, that's, that's in uh, Brooklyn. That's in um, Prospect Heights. Okay. And that shop's doing really well. Yeah, they, that's a beautiful, nice store. Great yeah. people that run it, and... Um, a lot of social activity as well as far as, like, having signings and events and stuff. Yeah, and I really think a lot of shops, you know, that don't do it should do it because, I mean, like, Third Eye Comics is a great shop that just, you know, Collector's Corner, these these places that just do it right. Like, they invite, Bergen Street's one of them. Like, that's how I got to know so many people when I was living in New York was just going to the release parties at Bergen Street and, and Tom and Amy and Tucker are just awesome, and, and they would just introduce me to... Whoever was signing and, and introduced me as a as a friend of the sh- of the shop and a fellow writer and that's how I've made some really great friendships with some some established people. Yeah, we we try to do what we can for for Comic Fusion to get creators in and have signings, and it's 
usually only going to be successful if there's a larger reason, like Free Comic Book Day and our big charity events, you know, Superhero Weekend. Because then we know that people are coming in specifically for that. Because we've done signings where we've just said, hey, come on in and we'll do, like, a noir day. And we'll have, like, you know, three or four noir comics writers and artists and stuff in. And, you know, inevitably what happens is their own friends and family show up. And that's, you know, like, <laughs> you know, we can't – It's I don't know if it's a location thing or um, I don't know if we have trouble publicizing because I feel like I, you know – Pop, you know, just run my mouth all the time about the shop. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it is, but it might just be that we're in the middle of Nowhereville, New Jersey, you know? Gotcha. Um, but Wild Pig, uh, we always have fun there, too. Wild Pig does fun signings and events. And um, Bill Ellis, who's a, an artist and creator, is managing their social activity, if you will. He's So that's, that's in a whole different part of Jersey where it's more populated and um, might be easier to get to as far as transit and stuff goes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but the, but Wild Pig is just, again, great, fun group of people. And they do a most, the most amazing sales twice a year, 50% off sales. Wow. Yeah, I mean, on trades. Like, it doesn't wow. matter. It doesn't, there's just racks and racks of trades that are 50%. That's awesome. So that's what I do. That's when I do my shopping. <laughs> like, if I'm not getting it digitally, I take, like, 100 bucks to Wild Pig. <laughs> and then I come I come home with a trunk full of books, and that lasts me usually a year or more because <laughs> I'm such a slow reader. Yeah, I actually, because I don't have a shop, I haven't been keeping up with anything. Like, I, I think I'm going to have to just break down and get an iPad just so I can read things on Comixology. Yeah, it's because I, I, I have a Kindle, and it really is helpful. I mean, sometimes I'll just, uh, if I'm not writing while I'm, you know, have a slow moment at work, I'll download PDFs, and um, it's usually stuff that, you know, people want to send me review copies and stuff. So, I've you know, I read a lot of review copies, and it's just, you know, alt-tabbing back and forth between work and reading a page or something like that. Sure, sure. And, yeah. and you can do it on the Kindle, but I actually... Uh, you know, I'm con- like constantly zooming, like oh, you know, okay. you know, pinching in and pinching out to just to read the captions and stuff, and it gets a little tedious on a, on a device that small. Sure, but um, you know, whatever. It's it's convenient because I can sit in sit in bed with that, and it's very convenient. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 the other thing is like I I just you know I, I do love printed copies, but um. To get a hold of them is is problematic, and I don't I don't really want to wait for trades honestly because I like supporting um, creators when they have books coming out because it's just and they just keep cool. going. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, my my brother had got an iPad Mini, and I, I was looking, I was reading a comic on it, and I was actually pretty impressed, even though it's it's a smaller device. You know, it you can hold it in one hand, and and the pages actually I can read an entire page without having to zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so maybe I'll have to figure something out about getting that so I can get my comics fixed because I'm so behind. What kind of stuff are you reading these days? Um, I guess the last thing I read was, I read the trade paperback of, um, Nick Spencer and Riley Rossmo's Bedlam. Um, and before that, um... Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been buying a lot of, like, trades and graphic novels through Amazon, just because it's convenient, and, mm-hmm. um, Sacrifice, Sam Humphreys and Dalton Rose's Sacrifice through Dark Horse was 
It's phenomenal. Um, there are a couple independent titles that uh, friends of mine that uh, run Orbital Comics in London recommended some really great indie titles. So I, I picked it. One is, um, oh man, I'm forgetting. I, I don't even think I could say that. I forget the title. It's a pretty long title, but um, I think it was put out through Fantagraphics. Um, but yeah, just just recommendations at this point. Um, haven't really followed up with single issues. Like I really want. I love Saga, and I'm just waiting for the next trade to come out because I'm so far behind on the single issues. So right, it's just kind of frustrating. You can sort of like get a bigger chunk in one sitting. Yeah, and I'm actually kind of impressed that um, with comics, people don't really spoil comics through Twitter or Facebook. Like I have friends that have ruined. TV shows and movies for me. But. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've had I've had the networks ruin it. I mean, like they don't even wait twenty four hours and they're talking about their own show. I'm just like, God damn you, Castle people. Yeah, seriously, and and I'm I'm impressed that even though I haven't picked up the last four or five issues of Saga, I I don't feel like anything's been spoiled. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think a couple people spoiled Gravity for me recently, and I haven't seen it, and I, 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 the last two weekends, I'm like, I'm gonna go see Gravity, I'm gonna go see it, and I don't see it, and then I read something, someone posted on Facebook, and I'm like, damn it. Oh. Well, let's see, I'm, I read, uh, I did read the, the first issue for Pretty Deadly. Oh, I haven't read that, that's, it's very good. I was not sure I was going to get through it because this I will spoil only because I think of it more as a warning. By page two, there's a little bunny getting his brains blown out. And it's like, wow. and he, I mean, like the Emma Rios, right, is the artist. Um, yeah. Phenomenally gorgeous book. Oh, and yet page two is this giant picture of a bunny's brains being blown out. <laughs> and I was just like. Ready, I mean, like, I'm a vegetarian, folks, if y'all don't know that by now. And I was, I was, I'm on Twitter and I'm like, oh my god, really? I really want to read this book. I want to love this book. And I got through it and it was fantastic. So, um, so it does get a recommendation despite page two. Um, and like I said, I was reading this, uh, this very large, uh, collection of short stories called Twisted Dark by Neil Gibson. Um, Death Sentence by Monty Nero is uh, from Titan Comics. Titan's a great publisher. I love hearing about them actually. Wow, they they're doing some they do some really cool stuff, and they're they're London based. So it's funny. I went to a party and I was just like meeting everybody, and I'm like, "You're all from not here. (laughs) 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 Like I'm in New York. I'm like, you're all from London." Um. Uh. Let's see, what else? I, I feel like I just, I re, uh, there's a book called Sanctuary that um, the the author contacted me. It was a seven-part comic talking about animals and animal animal rights and stuff like that. And it's, a, you know, very heavily about uh, animal testing. So, oh, wow. But it was a very cartoony style. Like, we're, mm-hmm. you know, you were talking about cartoony, and I don't, I agree. I don't think Pulp and, and Chris's work, I would call that cartoony because, it's not like disnified. Yeah, and there's there's nuances yeah. in like facial expressions that he just Yeah. So so Stephen Coughlin's uh book Sanctuary is uh I would say a cartoonier version of from you know, serious subject matter, but uh I don't I'll have to have him on the show to figure out where people will be able to get that. Um Lone Ranger, of course, always reading. Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah, um, the, the book that I was mentioning earlier, um, I think it's called The 
The end of the fucking world. Oh, that's so funny, because that's what Paul was just recommending. Oh, my God. That thing is a page-turner. I've always been fascinated with serial killers. Not that this is spoiling the book, but um, it, it has that same, like, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a violent book, but in a way that is just so um, disturbing. And, you know, you, you, because of the style, you're not thinking it's going to go in that direction at all. And, and I just, I sat down and I, I was reading it and I was just, within 10 pages, I was like, what am I reading? And before I knew it, I finished it. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to read this again, because this just totally knocked my socks off. Um, so yeah, people need to be picking up that book. That, that thing is amazing. Cause I think it was originally serialized. I forget. I think the guy, um, I hate that I forget the guy's name, but, um, he, I think was self-publishing it through some publisher he had established. Well, yeah, that was like Oily Comics or something. Yeah, Oily Comics, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, I guess it's going out through Fantagraphics or something now. Yeah, it's, it's really, really great, really great. Uh, so let's say, uh, so I finally, I started to write down the com- the comics and books and stuff that I read, so that way by the end of the year I can look back and see what I actually got through. <laughs> um, Doc Unknown by uh, Fabian Yeah. Rano. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so, and he did a, a Kickstarter for the one, Boss Snake one shot, yeah. and I love it. And along those sort of same, you know, pulpy lines, like, um, you know, Doc Unknown and your book Pulp is uh, Action Lab's got a book out called Jack Hammer. Oh, sweet. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, uh, Velvet, of course, Brubaker and Epting. Oh, is it, was it, is it good? Like, I've been yeah. hearing things. Yeah. I, I honestly, I feel terrible because I have a bunch of Brubaker books on my shelf that I've never gotten to. Yeah. Uh, so this was the, the first uh, noir book of his that I read ever. And Rick, Have you read Fatal? No. It's sitting oh. on my shelf. Oh, you got to read that. Yeah. Oh. I know. Exactly. And... Um, <laughs> So it's sort of like a, a James Bond with a female lead. Cool. Um, uh, so the, uh, Tabitha actually is another Neil Gibson comic, and uh, that's that had an interesting story. You were talking about how you you were working on a story about a group of of people together and different points of view and stuff. And Tabitha is about a group of kids. Well, not kids, but you know, young people. And they get sort of brought into this terrible serial killer type type situation. Really? Yeah. So, and uh, mixtape. I had Brad Abraham on the show and had a great time talking to him in in New York. So, mixtape is uh, another big recommendation. A lot of fun because it's um, same sort of premise. You know, like these different people that are involved in each other's lives and then you get to see their own individual stories and uh, he ties it together with, you know, 90s music. Nice. That sounds like something I would absolutely read. Yeah, so there's uh, so we got quite a rundown of, of comics for each other and for you guys listening to check out. Um, all right, Jeremy, anything else before I let you go? No, I think that's it. I think, uh, thank you for having me. This is, a, as always, a lot of fun. So, um... Should people be following you on Twitter? Is that the easiest place? Twitter is the easiest. Uh, it's just at Jeremy underscore Holt. Um, I update a Tumblr. Um, I, I didn't really know what Tumblr was, and, and um, Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh was really pushing me to get a Tumblr. She's like, it's so visual, and anything you post, you know, if I repost, if it goes out to, like, 20,000 people, I'm like, what are you talking about? That mm-hmm. sounds crazy. So I do have a Tumblr that I'm 
periodically updating, which is, um, I, I don't know how someone follows a Tumblr, but it's just Clump of Trees, which is uh, also my website, my blog. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't like Tumblr as much, but I have it set up just for the podcast so that new episodes go there. Oh, nice. But, yeah, I don't, I don't really like Tumblr. <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I, I kind of get it, and it's like, it's kind of like Twitter, I guess, but more Kind visible. of. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's. I don't know, the functionality to, to me, I don't, the website doesn't really make sense to me. Like, I, I try to add things or change things or, I don't know, it just. Yeah, I had a hard time with it. Yeah. I mean, Twitter's, when you, when you see 16 retweets of something, you're like, you know, okay, but on Tumblr, for some reason, all the reblogs, a lot of times the source gets lost. Oh. So you don't know where things originally came from, and if it is something visual, you know, artistic, or like a photo or a comic or something like that, people, you, the point is you want people to get back to it, to you, yeah, to learn more, and that doesn't seem to really happen. But a lot of people use Tumblr just for their own creative purposes, like, you know, some people write their poetry on Tumblr and it gets reblogged or whatever. Oh, I see, I see. And that's fun. Um, but... I know, I, I know that I follow you easily on Twitter. Likewise. So, and speaking of, you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber, and of course, the uh, the rest of the information is at amberunmasked.com. Not always safe for work, but <laughs> <laughs> but there you have it. Um, and uh, look for me, yeah, look for me at the Virginia Comic Con, and then I will be uh, at the Hamilton or Ham- I think that's how you say it, Hamilton. New Jersey Comic-Con in December, and then moving on to Voltaire's Necro-Comic-Con. So, crazy stuff going on here. Um, Jeremy, thanks again. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, have a great day. Cheers.